Okay, we're live. All right. Welcome to the Podcast. Podcast going everything. We're going. All right. Today we have writer Zach Lehman. Yeah. We just saw the Joker movie. What'd you think? I loved it. I thought it was the feel-good movie of the year. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. It was one of the funniest movies I've seen in a long time. 
what was funny about it. Did you think it was funny? There was parts of it that were funny. <laughs> but overall, I would not say it's a humorous but film. There were definitely times I held back laughter. And I won't spoil, like, scenes. No, we can spoil, dude. If you haven't seen it by now, it. he's seen it. Mil we're Mil good. Millhouse here. I don't want to spoil yeah. it. Mil Millhouse has seen it. <laughs> well, there were some... Towards the end, there's some really, really violent stuff that happens, and I kind of had to hold back laughter because I didn't want people to look at me like I was Arthur Fleck because <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. What did you think was funny about it? Well, like the scene... Remember the scene with the midget? When yes. When comes to visit him? Yes. That was... That was comedy gold. That was hilarious. I don't think that's a politically correct term to use anymore. <laughs> oh, my bad. What is it? Uh, little person? Little person. Oh, okay. But they, they also said midget in the movie, though. It was the 80s. Yeah. It's said the 80s? from the 80s, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. didn't get that? Did you get that it was a period piece? I, I, thought, I thought it was in the 70s. Uh, it might have been the 70s. It seemed like a gritty kind of 70s. Yeah. I guess it could have been the 70s. They didn't really say. 70s or 80s. Probably 70s. I thought it was a really social movie. Oh, yeah. Definitely about today. But they, uh, I like that they made their points. It wasn't, it was through the characters. Like, everything felt, like, genuine, you know? It didn't feel like, all right, pause the movie. This fucking director's gonna go on some bullshit rant. We're gonna sit here and listen to it, you know? Like, that's final speech he gives. Because he, you know, at the end he goes crazy and he gives one little, one little uh, speech where he sort of, comes out as the Joker. It was good, man. And you could feel it from just a character perspective. Like, yeah. I thought it was great. I, I can't believe that's a studio movie. I can't believe... I can't believe that either. I can't believe, like... It was very nuanced. It was way too nuanced to be a comic book movie. Because they were so, like, they really played with him being an unreliable narrator. Like, they did shit that just does not translate overseas. You know what I mean? That's why, like, those Marvel movies and stuff are so dumbed down. Because they know they have to keep it really simple so it translates and it's got to speak to you know an audience of eight years old to whatever. I thought it was great. I can't believe somebody at Warner Brothers thought that was a good idea, though. It I, paid off. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a fucking incredible movie. I think my, uh, my favorite scene was definitely when he goes um, on, on the show, on the Franklin Murray show. That was yeah. his name, right? Yeah, Franklin Murray. Live with Franklin Murray. And the whole thing about it, it's... It felt loosely connected to the to like Batman, like it, there yeah. was no strong ties. The only thing I didn't like is when they when they murdered Bruce Wayne's parents. Well, the thing is, like, how many fucking times are gonna watch that guy's parents be killed in the fucking alleyway? Yeah, like, is it every director just have like a hard on for that one scene? I think so. Like we have seen it so many times. That was something I would have, I would have cut out like probably the last five minutes of the movie, because that was where they really started going like. He's the Joker. Bruce is going to be Batman. <laughs> but, but that was great, though, whenever the, the ambulance rammed into the cop car. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, my dick was hard when that happened. I was like... They just went and they pulled him out yeah. and put him on the hood of the car. Yeah, that was great. And, and it was like he was the Joker. <laughs> yeah. I, that was the moment I would have ended it on. I would have ended it on that, too. Out of the audience, he's just dancing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. But then the thing that was interesting was they, they cut away at the end and you don't know... Like, how much of that he was imagining versus how much of it was actually happening. <clears throat> well, I think it gave away what a lot of what was imagined. That was actually my one... The one thing I didn't like about the movie was his relationship with the neighbor girl. Because it was obvious what was happening from the beginning. That it was in his head? Yeah. That it was just like obvious. That they just didn't... There wasn't enough interaction between them. It was like... It was so unneeded. 
Do you think he killed her? No, I don't think so. I'm surprised they didn't show her at the end, but I don't. I don't think he did because he also let the little person go. He did <laughs> because he was nice. Because he was nice, so I think he he doesn't want to hurt nice people. He wants to hurt assholes. <laughs> assholes who fuck with him on trains and assholes who think they're better than everybody else. Well, what I also liked about it is that overall, there were multiple. Um, <clears throat> it was it was making fun of basic, not making fun of, but talking about every aspect of our culture. As, as far as, like, the things that people don't like about it. Yeah. And it was all equal. And it was all unlikable stuff. My, uh, my favorite line from the movie was when he says, uh, comedy is subjective. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. I think we were the only two people laughing yeah. in the theater yeah. when that happened. Because <laughs> everyone's looking at him like, this guy's crazy. I'm like, he's kind of funny. <laughs> I'm digging his brand of humor. That definitely felt like Todd Phillips probably wrote that speech. Because he's been saying all that shit about it's so hard to do comedy today because if you do comedy, then you have to deal with all these, you know, woke, fucking digital fucking warriors typing away on their iPhones. And that felt like a speech where he was kind of, it was common man versus, you know, this image that doesn't exist. I think that scene was definitely a gi- uh, like a giant middle finger to oh, yeah. a lot of what's happening that in the culture. That whole movie was a right giant now. middle yeah, finger. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> to everybody comic book fans, <laughs> politically correct people, like, it was a middle finger to everybody, and you either laugh or you don't. <laughs> what do you think was the most uh, offensive thing in the movie? Not that you thought it was offensive, but... I, I was offended by nothing. Um, wow, what was it? That's so hard for me to answer, because I don't get offended by really anything. Um, I mean, probably... Probably one of the last, like, murder scenes... Like the cop one, people probably find that oh, pretty offensive. Oh, yeah. I was kind of laughing. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> when like, they were on the subway? Yeah. The way that scene turned and the way it played out was, I mean, you just don't see people direct shit like that anymore. You know what I mean? Because, again, it's too nuanced. There's too much going on. There's too many threads, you know? Which is why it surprised me that somebody at Warner Brothers was crazy enough to be like, here's $55 million. We'll put this in, you know, 4,000 theaters. I'm surprised. You don't see that happen anymore. Now I, movies like that, you know, they go to streaming. I think one of the other parallels in the in the movie was uh, that and, like, incel culture. Yeah. Like, the Joker yeah, was he, basically oh. an incel in the, in, oh, the, yeah. in the whole movie. I know that people were giving it shit for um, sympathizing too much for that, but I really think that the whole movie was about empathy. Well, yeah, that's... In, in our society's lack of empathy today. Yeah. But again, that's like, we've reached this point. This is why, like, you know, all these people on their fucking iPhones thinking they're living through, like, the second Holocaust. They all, you know, Todd Phillips goes out there and he's like, you know, I'm tired of people being politically correct. It's too hard to do comedy. And they basically tell him to go fuck himself, but that's exactly what he's talking about. You know? It's just, it's too, these are concepts. Like, just, like, empathy is central to art. I didn't think that was up for debate anymore. But now it is. You know what I mean? Now it's like, oh no, you can't make a movie about a bad guy. Like, really? Because The Sopranos was on for nine fucking years. Like, where the fuck were you? I mean, what the fuck was Breaking Bad? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, totally. Like, it was I just don't understand someone breaking down, going from this normal human being to This selective villain. outrage is like... I think it has way less to do with being outraged. I think it just has to do with narcissism. People are offended by Joker. They're offended by Todd Phillips. You're not supposed to exist with that sort of bravado anymore. So then they just come up with a reason to fucking get mad. 
you know. Why do you think they think it's offensive? <laughs> you don't have to ask them, man. But you can't because they're just a faceless fucking crowd, you know? How so? Because they're sitting on their iPhones, just typing away. I'm offended by this today, and tomorrow I'll forget what this is. You know, I'm offended <laughs> by this fucking video. I'm offended by something Trump says, because apparently we're not used to Trump saying crazy shit. It's just crazy. And yeah. if you are offended by that, again, like the empathy thing. Like, people go, oh, uh, I don't like that this movie empathizes with someone like this. Okay, well, where the fuck were you when the ten other movies that came out this year also empathize with bad guys? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you're going to be pissed off, be pissed off. Not this selective outrage bullshit. And, I mean, you see, like, the, the way, like, the media covers Joker. They do all these stories that are like, what if something violent happens? <laughs> what if something happens? And it's like, really, are you concerned about that? Or would you be happy because you get to wake up Write your clickbait story, get thousands of clicks because a bunch of other assholes are pissed off now. It's like they're hoping for it. Like, I mean, I saw, I, I can't remember the outlet that did it, but it, this story went around. It was like a guy got arrested in like LA or something because he was at a Joker screening. And all he, he did something like he was yelling at people or something. It's like that shit happens all the time. Why is it news now? <laughs> Because you're narcissistic ass. I think this might be the Murray Franklin show right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had clown makeup and a gun, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> well, well, speaking knock, knock of uh, <laughs> of unreliable narrators, you have a, a new book out. Can I uh, can I see it here? It's a, a book called uh, Nye by Zach Lehman. Nye. What is this? Uh, what is this book about, Zach? Uh, it's a collection of stories. Uh, the concept is the world is ending and it's going to end in a certain amount of days and everyone knows the exact moment is coming. So each story drops you in with a different character at a different time. Um, you know, one story might be there's 200 days left and you see what they're doing. And then there's one anchor story that sort of starts it and ends it and then runs through it and it's a cop who is finding uh, the last murderers, the last cases that he had before the news came down, which is what everyone calls it, the moment everyone found out that the world was going to end. That's what it's about. So it's just about people and what happens when, you know, you take away the, the rules of society, you take away the, the facades we have to have, and you take away the consequences, then it's what are people really like, you know? What are people really like? I don't know. I know my perspective. I mean, I think the concept is one that, you know, if 10 different people wrote it, you'd get 10 very different books. Someone could write a really positive book based on that concept. My book, you know, has... It is so, called Nye. Yeah, not so positive stuff. But it does end with a laugh. You know how Joker ended with a joke? <laughs> I don't know if I would Nye. necessarily say it ends with a laugh. Oh, it did for me, because uh, he tells the joke, and it was hilarious. And I, I will say, I was like, I get that, because at the end of Night, there's a, there's a joke. You don't want to give it away, though, right? No, 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 no. But, uh, spoilers, the world might end. When did you start this book? Uh, I don't know, probably a long time, uh, like, probably four years ago. But I was working on it kind of off and on for probably two years. And it was the last two years where I really buckled down. And I realized that it could even be a book. Because originally it was just like a writing prompt I sort of gave myself to just keep myself writing. Because there were just a lot of reasons for me not to write. So I just came up with this, this sort of concept, used it as a writing prompt. And I would just write like story after story after story. Most of them didn't even make it into the book. 
but uh, after a while I started revisiting this one character and I said, well, maybe this could be a book. And that's when I sort of buckled down the last two years. And that's when I really was writing it all the time and editing it and actually turning it into what it is. So what does your writing schedule look like? Do you sit down every day and say, I'm going to at least knock out 10 pages? Do you yeah, just I mean, wait for inspiration? How does that work? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think uh, I have like a specific process. I don't really buy into the whole, you know, some people, like I've met writers who are like, I need to be in my, my perfect chair with my cat and my my coffee and everything has to be perfect. I think writing is, if you're going to actually do it, you're going to finish a book, it's just work, you know what I mean? So you just set a goal for yourself every day. And one of the pieces of advice I heard, I think it was Stephen Hunter who said it, who's a very successful novelist, he just said, whatever you do, just make sure you write 20 to 90 minutes every day. So that's kind of what I have to do. And eventually you do it so much that when you don't do it, it's there's like an endorphin release in your brain that you don't get. You know, and it's like working out when you work out every day, and then you go a few days without doing. You start feeling cloudy, and you start feeling. So it just becomes like a necessary part of your schedule. A discipline. Yeah, yeah. But I don't do it at like a specific time. I mean, I like to write like early in the morning or late at night. I like the idea of kind of everyone being asleep, me writing my fucked up stories. So wait until after dark. Yeah, after dark. Baby. Going out, killing a, a few homeless people. <laughs> <laughs> Using that as inspiration. No, no, I wouldn't kill homeless people. I'd kill. Uh, you know, I'd be like the Joker. I'd kill the bad people. <laughs> I think I'm exactly what the media warned about. When like, people empathize too much with the Joker. Because now I'm kind of like, you know what? Like, I, If I was a kid, I'd rather be Joker than Batman. <laughs> he was a very relatable character. Yeah. But that's where, you know, art comes in. Is you take a character that, especially today where, you know, judgments come so fucking quick. You know, it's good to have art that actually goes into complex characters. That's what people are. They're complex. Even though it's not appreciated today, you know, something like The Joker, my stupid book, can uh, can still do that. Because that's, that's what I think the value of art is, you know. Do you have any characters like that in your book? Like The Joker? Yeah. No, I don't think I have any Joker characters. I'm not creative enough to come up with a Joker character. I have some crazy people. You know, some people lose their minds. There's definitely uh, some violence, but... Uh, some? There's a lot of violence. Basically, every book is either sex, drugs, or death. That's pretty much it. Because <laughs> what do people value when the world's ending, you know? Or at least what my characters value. That's true. You know? Society's face drops. Yeah, you appreciate the... I mean, when you take away the consequences of, of just everyday life, I think most people... What do they really want to do? I mean, most people are fucking animals. You know what I mean? So, but there's good, there's some positive stuff in there, too. Is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a story about a family that goes on a camping trip together. That's a positive story. I think some of the stories are positive, and other people probably go, this isn't positive. But I also thought Joker was really, really funny, so I might be on a separate plane. I might be a little crazy. So you wrote, you started this book when you were still in the army, right? Yeah, it was probably my, probably my last year in the army. I was in the army reserve, by the way. The army Figured reserve. Okay. I don't want to act like I'm Big Dick Rambo over here. I did real military service. I was a truck driver in the army reserve for six years. Most I ever did was drive some shit from point A to point B in Canada. Hey, that counts, dude. Thank you for your <laughs> yeah. service. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was probably my last year in the army, and then. 
And then uh, I moved to Nashville almost two years ago. That was when I was... It's been two years? I think so, right? Almost. Coming up, probably a year and a half. I guess so. Yeah. So I was just finishing it up when I came to Nashville, like doing the editing. But I think it was all written when I came to Nashville. Yeah. But, yeah. So my last year in, which was a weird year because they were, you know, I had a lot of weird shit going on. But uh, they were also telling me my last year in, like, all the time, they were like, they sent me to, I wasn't even in my unit in Maine, they sent me to a unit in Massachusetts, and they were like, you're going to get deployed. You're getting deployed to these people you don't know. And so I was just in this mindset for a year of like, all right, well, just got to find a cocaine dealer over there, you know, get fucked up, pull my Vietnam year. And it never happened. It was a big build up to nothing. But it's just, it played into my mindset when I was writing the book, you know. A lot of paranoia. Just, yeah, a lot of paranoia, a lot of like, just, uh, you know, dark clouds, just kind of. Being on edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being in a bad mood all the time. Looking at other people being like, why are you not in a bad mood? The fuck's your problem? I got a release coming up, too. Yeah. <laughs> Gina, Gina, Gina. Gina, 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 yeah, dude. Yeah. It's uh, it's coming out on Friday the 18th. On which, iTunes and Yeah, all the, all the streaming platforms, okay, YouTube, cool. everywhere. Cool. Um... I will be playing a solo show that night at the Five Spot. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I've been holding on the song for a couple of years. This is going to be my uh, my first release. When did you start writing Gina Gina? I wrote it... Well, I recorded it about two years ago. Like, at, at Blackbird Studios. Or when did you first, Nashville. like, sit down and start writing? That was probably, geez, maybe three years ago now. Wow. Almost the same time frame for us. Yeah, yeah, probably so. That's crazy. I was still living in um, on Lebanon Pike, working for a leasing okay. company. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote it. I was just feeling kind of depressed. Yeah, I wrote <laughs> it. No one's ever in a good mood. Uh, yeah, I was not. I was not in a great mood. I hadn't written really. I've only written, maybe that's like my third or fourth song that I've actually finished since I moved to Nashville. Wow. Because I didn't really. I haven't really been writing a lot, but. Um, yeah, so uh, I met Ronnie Bates out at one of the jams, and he um, he asked me if I wanted to record at Blackbird uh, for free, and I said yes because he was going Blackbird. to yeah Blackbird Studios, and we actually just recorded there again a couple weeks ago for Ronnie's blues po uh, project, mm -hmm. and we recorded over in Room A, which um, the Killers recorded in there, and a couple of people like that. But the room we recorded in is where uh, the White Stripes recorded Icky Thump, and they also, uh, the Rock on Tours, Jack White's other band recorded Consolers of the Lonely. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was pretty surreal, because the studio was like a multi-million dollar place. Uh, there was just like a million dollars worth of drum mics yeah. on the, um, on the drums. So you were depressed when you wrote it, but it's not a very depressing... I would, I would... It's a pretty upbeat song. I, I would personally argue against that. I think it, it, it... But yeah, I guess uh, just knowing that the, the mental state that I was in at the time, you know, I was really uh, pretty down deep in life with just a lot of things I wasn't happy with, like a job, um, you know, romantic situations, all sorts of things. And I just started thinking back to um, Maine, where we both grew up. We did. Um... In particular, these years, I was like 19 to 21, going yeah. to a lot of cane parties. 
Uh, wow, those must have been fun. They were a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, it's kind of... Main I think house it, parties. I think it was a, a snapshot of that kind of time period and, like, my last leg in Maine and kind of how I was feeling about it. But, um, yeah, uh, go check it out. Go download it. It'll probably be out. I'll play it at the top of this episode so people have already heard it by the time we're talking about it now. Yeah. But it's... Uh, I'm really excited about it. Hopefully going to be getting to work here soon um, on, an, uh, on a new album. Um, also at the Five Spot Show, I will be playing bass with Dustin Sellers. And I will... Um, I, well, Justin and the Cosmics are also going to be playing. And we have uh, potentially one more opener slotted. I'm just waiting for um, for it to be confirmed. Um, but that's going to be happening. And then November 17th, I'm going to be playing with uh, Emma Holden. And the Emma Holden Trio is going to be our one-year anniversary show over at the Cobra. So we've been together for a year. It's a big stuff planned. Yeah. So that'll be pretty cool. Other than that, I don't know what else I have going on. Just the podcast. So. Will you writing other songs? Yeah, I have some other stuff written. You know, I have kind of some songs picked out for uh, for an album. I just got to start trying to make moves on it. I have a pretty good idea, I think, of what I'm going to do and the artistic direction I'm going to go next. And uh, I'm also going to be singing the material, which will be new. That's never something I really ever saw myself doing. Um, something that's always kind of scared me. So, At least you have the single, something to hang your hat up on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good, right? Well, yeah. No, exactly. Like, yeah. how was that that final um, those final couple weeks, like right before you released Nye? How were you feeling? Um, it's uh, probably sounds pretentious, but it's a little bit like you kind of view it like your kid. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like your kid could be a total piece of shit, or he could be awesome. But either way, it's your kid. Yeah. So you feel pretty good. You feel like you know, you're. Like, finishing something feels good, whether it's good or not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I view the book now. Like, I'm so distant from it now that, you know, if somebody came up to me and they were like, yo, your book was the worst thing I ever read, I'd be like... Thanks for reading it. Yeah, I'd be like, I agree. And if somebody said it was the best thing they ever read, I'd be like, I also agree. <laughs> it's just a feeling of, like, it feels good to just, you know, now it's kind of out in the world. It's like, you you didn't raise a kid, but you raised, you know... Our version of a kid. Yeah. I can't handle a real kid. I can barely handle a fucking book. Josh from Queens of the Stone Age, he, uh, he said that writing a song is like mining something from within you. And you're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away until it's not there anymore. Well, how long did it actually take you to write Gina Gina? Honestly, like probably, like, single... probably like 20 minutes. I did that first wow. demo. It just came, it just poured right out of me. And I, I had all, all the, pretty much the ideas there. I, I changed some production things the next day, but like the demo that I recorded that I gave to the band for us to play in studio, uh, yeah, within two days it was just completely done. And it, that, that's what it was. Yeah, so that's probably a different feeling, right? Yeah, well, especially because when the opportunity came about, I knew I wasn't going to be singing on the project. I just didn't really feel like it was my gift. Right. I was kind of nervous about that. I didn't really see myself like that at the time. And um, so I was like, I got to pick something that's catchy that players can also interpret. Because I feel like a lot of... Well, let me just speak for myself. So anytime that I play with someone, I want to have some freedom in what I'm playing. And I want to have some creativity with it. 
So it was like I gave the band the demo, which was uh, Isaac Short and Gabrielle Lewis from the Weird Sisters. Ben Lushka played guitar. Um, Isaac played guitar. He also, uh, Gabby did keys. He also mixed it. Um, and then Matt Doctor played drums. Uh, Kara Lippman arranged the, uh, the background vocals. And I had Madeline Martin. And I had, um, who else? I had Madeline Armour, a.k.a. Stella Moore. She's a, a great singer here in Nashville. And uh, the singer was Katie Burke, and she was great. You know, it was, it was really a pleasure to, to work with everybody, but it was different because it was like I was writing dialogue for a script that I had written and then gave it to other people to say. Yeah, so it's different. I mean, I guess, like, with Nye, I remember, like, when I was just finishing it, and I, I emailed a few writer buddies who were much smarter and more successful than me, and... I, I had this question that I never thought I'd have. I was like, when do you know you're done with a book? Like, how do you know to stop fucking with it? And nobody really had an answer. They're just like, you just know. You know what I mean? It's just a feeling you have. Like, if you keep doing anything, you're going to start hurting it. You want to throw it in the garbage. Yeah, and so it really reaches a point, like, when I was done, it was almost this, like, just giving up thing. Like, your kid turned 18, and you're like, there's nothing else I can do for you. Time to let you into society. Bye. Go pay your own bills. <laughs> Yeah, so that's how it feels, just kind of... Because you put so much time into it, and then you're doing it on your own so much that then you just get tired of, like, sitting down and writing the same thing, reading the same fucking story. Like, the last edit I did on Nye I was like, I don't give a shit what's wrong with this book. I'm done. I'm not reading this fucking book again. <laughs> and then you had to read it again to do Amazon edits. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, it's available through Amazon and... Uh, doing it myself was a fucking pain in the ass. You want to do some news? Yeah. What do you got for news? Weird stuff. Millhouse has some stuff here. Yeah. You're going to read it off to me? Yeah, you're going to read it off to us. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants promotes violent and racist colonism. Oh, I saw this. University professor claims. Yeah. What, what does the article say? Uh, it says SpongeBob SquarePants has been accused of normalizing and colonization of indigenous lands by a professor at the University of Washington. God, like, professors really have nothing good to do with their time. SpongeBob's a racist, bro. When you, I mean, when you're just sitting around and you're trying to figure out how, like, SpongeBob is racist or promotes these ideas, it's like, you need to get laid, man. You need to have a drink. Like, you need to calm the fuck down. Can you imagine, like, what are his, what kind of, like, insulated world do you live in where people don't tell you, like, that's crazy. When you sit around and you're like, guess what? I'm working on something new. It's about how SpongeBob is racist. And you just go on this rant. How is there nobody in your life who's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And that's what I'm talking about. Selective outrage, man. That's just narcissism. That's just a professor going like, how can I stand out? How can I get digital pats on the back from this faceless, woke fucking mob that I so desperately want to be a part of? <laughs> Like, that's just nonsense. It's like, like why, what are we debating? If if it's, you know, now Spongebob's a white supremacist? Like, holy shit. There's nobody left. Everyone's a white supremacist. You didn't have to be white anymore to be called a white supremacist. The standard has just, like, it's fallen through the floor, man. So, you know what? I agree with him. By today's standards, yeah, Spongebob is fucking racist. I think it's kind of crazy that it's a child's cartoon. A pretty innocent cartoon, too. About like, a sponge that 
that is square, that wears square span. It lives under the sea. Yeah, and a pineapple. And a pineapple. Sea. Yeah. And he's considered uh, racist. Like, I think if that's your takeaway from the show, I think there are more problems going on in your head. You need some fucking therapy. You know what I mean? That's what a crazy person says in therapy. Well, actually, all the funds for the city just got cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's creative enough to be the next Arthur Fleck. He's just an asshole. But wow, like, really... I mean, you really got nothing better to do with your time. That's amazing. I wish I got paid to just think up dumb shit like that. Where do you think this is all going? The SpongeBob thing? This Well, the SpongeBob thing is like a, a, a micro thing on a macro level. Yeah. You mean with just this sort of woke age we're living in? <laughs> yeah, it's all headed towards the end, man. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's... I don't know where it goes. I don't think, uh, you know, it's just like anything in life. It just gets a little bit worse every day, and you just learn to live with it. That's an optimistic outlook. Yeah. I mean, really. What's the next article? Um, Pharrell Williams speaks out against chauvinist culture and blurred lines. And what, is, what does the article say? Um... Pharrell Williams has moved to distance himself from blurred lines and controversial 2013 That's right. hits. He's he in that song. Alongside Robin. He produced it. Well, first off, I will say this about blurred lines. Before any of this woke shit happened and everyone was trying to like stand out in a crowd of like straight white men and be like, except me. I know <laughs> what's best. I hate all the like I did say when that song came out, that is a fucked up song. <laughs> The entire, like the whole song, Blurred Lines, he's talking about when a girl is at a point where she is drunk enough that it may be rape if you have sex with her. <laughs> and he's kind of being like, it's all right. I mean, I have nothing against the song, whatever. Robin Thicke is obviously like a douchebag, so he might as well sing douchebag songs. But for Pharrell to like be in the song and then years later, it's like, how desperate are you, man? How fucking desperate are you for attention? Well, they also got sued, too. Did you hear about that? Yeah, because it just stole from, what was it, a Marvel uh, Gaye song? Yeah, something? Got to Give It Up. Yeah. I, th I think it was Got to Give It Up. But there was a, a major lawsuit that happened. Yeah. Which, I kind of disagree with the lawsuit. Well, they said he, he, they stole from a Marvin Gaye song? Is that what the lawsuit That's was? That's what they claim. But yeah. the way that I see it, dude, it's like... Well, it happens all the time. It happens. Yeah. It happens all the time. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but music really is is all music is folk music in a way. Yeah. You learn how to play music from someone else, either just by listening to someone else or by actually playing with them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that. I mean, it's definitely a chauvinistic song. I mean, it's, it's the absolutely music video is. is literally Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, like in Ti. Oh, T.I.'s in the song, T.I.'s in the song, too. And they're just standing there. There's just naked girls dancing around them, like... You know what I mean? It's, yeah. So, yeah, it is a chauvinistic song. That was really, like, the last hit of that of that era before things kind of switched over. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't even defend the song. It just is what it is. Of course yeah. it's a chauvinistic song. And, and to just come out later and be like, you know, I, I regret that, guys. Like... That's it seems, that seems like a weak move of you trying to protect your ass and not something you actually believe. And also, but this is all people, again, this is all people care about. So he just pleased, you know, this digital faceless mob because he went, I'm sorry. That apology doesn't mean shit. Because if he didn't know that that was a chauvinistic song back when, whenever it came out, 
then he's an asshole. Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course he knew it was a chauvinistic song. He probably banged half those girls so they could have permission to be in the fucking music. Yeah. Band. And now all it takes for Pharrell to be a good guy is for him to go, I'm sorry. But then SpongeBob's a fucking white supremacist. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? What the fuck? Like, that's all it takes now is a public apology. Which, by the way, public apologies don't mean shit. There's no sincerity in apologizing to groups of people. Apologies only mean something if they're face-to-face. So fuck Pharrell Williams, and fuck that professor. I think he'll fucking fuck off to fuck off island. Will you tell us what the, the third topic is? Oh, this no one house. scares me, because I, I don't know if this is news, or I'm uh, getting nervous. Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, God. <laughs> Why? What, what is the latest on Jeffrey Epstein? Why are you doing this? <clears throat> Jeffrey Epstein's $56 million mansion could be on the market soon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh good. <laughs> That's what it says. Um, oh. Epstein's estate first legal bill in fight against accuser, accusers, 90,000. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? Read the, read the first one about, uh, about, about his mansion going on the market. <laughs> Damn. Jeffrey Epstein's lavish uh, 56 million Upper East Side mansion could be put up for sale soon. The pedophile's seven-story man's at 9 East 71st Street, filled with creepy decor, including a stuffed black poodle, a painting of Bill Clinton in drag, and a life-size female doll hanging from a chandelier is packed up. What the fuck? It's dark, dude. Do you get all the the paintings and stuff with it? The Bill Clinton thing's the worst. Isn't that the Bill Clinton? Does it show a picture of that? No, sadly. Do you know? Have you seen that picture? <laughs> no, I've not. Oh, dude, you won't Google sleep. it. Don't Google it, Mill. Google it. Sleep, Google dude. it. Google it. I gotta say, dude, that painting. This shows how desensitized we all are. When that painting came out, the fact that Jeffrey Epstein had a painting of Bill Clinton in a dress in his pedophile home, we should have been talking about nothing else. That was the most important thing to talk about. It just all went away. Yeah, we needed the story behind that painting because there's no normal story behind that. There is something dark and sinister behind that fucking painting. Yeah. That's fucked up, dude. I would rather live in... uh, Oh, yeah, there it is. Look at that, dude. That's so... That's just... What do you even see? This is the picture. I guess you can't really see it. But Google... uh, Bill Clinton in a, in a dress, and you'll be able to find it. And you want to know why journalism is dead? Because Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton are on a book tour right now, and nobody has asked them, fucks up with the painting. What do you guys think of this painting? Like, <laughs> There's, there is... your dad being best friends with Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> there is one post that I saw online of a guy who went to the signing, and he asked Hillary oh, to okay. sign his book <laughs> yeah. for Jeff, and then... <laughs> He then asked, will you sign a picture of my brother? He died recently, and it was a picture of Jeffrey Epstein. That's a, uh, that's a Joker move right there. <laughs> that is a Joker that's move. That's a Joker move. Yeah, dude, that's, I would rather live in um, a house where I knew like brutal murders had taken place than live in a place where I knew someone like Jeffrey Epstein lived. Because that's darkness you just can't even begin to... Wrap your head around. Whoever buys it needs to go on a watch list next. Well, you know who's going to buy it. It's going to be one of his buddies who buys it through a shell corporation. You think that's how it's going to go? It's not going to be a normal person. It's going to be someone fronting for someone who wants to hide shit. 
Bill Gates apparently has a deep relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. I've read this too. I wouldn't be surprised. What does that say? Since Jeffrey Epstein was arrested on charges of sex trafficking of minors and conspiracy in July, billionaire Bill Gates has downplayed his relationship with the late finance. Of course. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what we do now. <laughs> well, we're living in a, an alternate reality, I'm pretty sure. I think we, we yeah. did a switch somewhere in the 20, uh, summer of 2016 whenever, whenever those clown sightings started happening. Yeah. We entered a new realm. That's probably why we live in a world where Joker is actually a theatrically released movie. Because we're just in some alternative reality where there's no explanation for things. There's no explanation for Jeffrey Epstein either. That whole thing just went away. Did you did you follow that at all? Yeah, it just completely... Yeah. After he completely... Yeah. Oh yeah, after he killed himself? After he killed himself, yeah, dude. Right. You think he killed himself? No. I'm not even like a big conspiracy guy, and I'm I have so much apathy in me at this point that I just don't really care about anything. But I mean, if you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, come on, come on, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're part of the fucking problem. Stop having a voice. Stop. If you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, please don't vote anymore. Don't do anything. The cameras malfunctioned, dude. Cameras malfunctioned. There was something about the guard who was supposed to be there was off-duty. All these ex-prisoners were coming out saying the wing he was in, it would be impossible to do something like that because you're watched 24-7. His lawyer came out and said he was in a good mood because he was going to start dealing, and he actually had a chance of getting out of prison. He was going to start talking. Yeah. And, you know, when a guy like that talks, you know... You know, you've been flying billionaires back and forth to a place called Pedophile Fucking Island. <laughs> where the fuck it was called? Lolita Island or whatever it is. It's well, like, Lolita Express was the plane. Lolita Pedophile Express. Island was the island. Yeah. Can you believe we live in a world where, the, like, mainstream newspapers were forced to write shit like that in headlines? Because it was real. It was called the Lolita Express. Did you see the, the fucking temple on the island? Yeah, dude. This is, this is the short, sort of darkness that really fucks me What up. was going on underneath there? Well, they filled it up, right? They filled it filled it up with cement, supposedly. That right again, like, why are we talking about anything else? Why are we talking about SpongeBob? Why are we listening to Pharrell? Why are we not talking about the fact that that had a fucking dungeon basement that was filled with concrete? Like, we should only be talking about that until we have an answer. But rich and powerful men, man, which plays into uh, Joker. Who did he hate? These rich and powerful men. Well, the Joker, didn't, the Joker didn't hate anybody. Well, he did, because he gave the speech at the end where he called out people like Frank Murray, Thomas Wayne, who don't live in reality. They don't... That's, that's true. But he also said, well, who knows what he actually meant, because before they brought him up, mm-hmm. they were asking why he was wearing the makeup. Well, yeah. And if he sympathized with the clowns, who were, like, the people, his followers, were basically what I gather from it, kind of like Antifa. Yeah. But I think the reason he did that was because his political message is that there is no political message. You know what I mean? Yes. He just wants to bring a little more chaos into the world. Which is truly what the Joker is as a character. And I I think at the end, I think if you watch that scene, I'll have to watch it again, but I think you see a change in him. And then when he finally... Because remember, when he goes to the show, he has a different plan. His plan was not to, you know, 
say what he said and do what he did. It was to do something else. It was to do something else. So I think during that interview, things changed a little bit. And he did say, you know what? I am the leader of this fucking movement, you know? And I'm going to tell them exactly what to think. And that's what it's about. It's about, you know... Like how, like the Jeffrey Epstein thing, that disappeared. Because apparently, you know, we're more interested in going after Todd Phillips because he says something we don't like than going after people who are billionaires who are potentially, like, literally raping kids and probably doing other fucked up shit we don't even know about. But we have no interest in that. We want to talk about how Todd Phillips says you can't make comedy movies anymore. We want to talk about, you know, Joe Rogan having what, you know, whoever on his podcast. That's the shit people get upset about. And it's like, oh, okay. But uh, meanwhile, all these people who were flying Lolita Express back and forth to Pedophile Island, let's just forget about that. Let's not talk about that, you know? I want to end this show on a positive note. Will you read us a story? Yeah, do you want me to? Yes. It'll... All right. Will you read the story for dog lovers? Yeah. I don't want to bore everybody. Take a sip of water. Um, where can people uh, find the book? How can they find you? Where's... You can find the book on Amazon. Uh, it's Nye, N-I-G-H, Zachary Lehman, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y. And uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Writing Lehman, I think I am. Uh, I'm on Instagram, unfortunately, so you can probably find me on there. Instagram's where it's at, dude. Yeah, I mean, social media is not where it's at in general. Alright, sure you want me to read this? Yes. Alright, alright. Ready, Millhouse? Oh, yeah. All right. I'll try to make it quick. So, like I said, they're all different stories, different characters, and then you're you're dropped in with so many days left in that person's life. Kind of snapshot stories. This is one of the snapshot stories. Scott, 255 days left. She tries hard to breathe, but her throat is spitting blood. Her mouth, half gone, sucks for air, but gets none. <laughs> I grab her shoulders and pull her close to me. I don't know what else to do. Through the red and the pain, I see your eyes clearly for a moment. The eyes of a child, the eyes of someone dying who doesn't understand the concept yet. They are confused and lost and burning out, and I don't know what to do. Her chest convulses a few times, and then her eyes look off, and I can feel her breath disappear, and that makes me still and quiet. The dog stands his ground a few feet away, snarling. There's a piece of thick flesh hanging from his lower lip, quivering with each growl. He lowers his head, not taking his eyes off me. After what cannot be more than a handful of seconds of us staring at each other, I watch the dog's head explode and shower the ground and the rest of his body follow with a quick drop. I look up to see the girl's father at the end of a shotgun. He stands sturdy over the remains of the animal, and my heart is ready to claw its way through my ribs and skin and shirt. The father looks to the girl in my arms, and his eyes are quiet. He turns and walks back into his house. Uh, Her name is Cassie, I think. I don't know how old she is, but I guess seven or eight. I sit there holding the mess left of the girl in my arms as the dog cooks next to us in the sun. After 20 or so minutes, I realize the father is not coming back out of his house and I call 911. They keep me on hold for nearly an hour and then finally tell me that someone will be there soon. The sun starts to disappear after another 30 minutes and I lay Cassie next to the decaying flesh of her dog and sit and wait alone. Eventually, the only light in the air is from the street lamps. The one closest to me flickers, ready to die out. Flies start hovering and picking at the bodies next to me. I'm about to call 911 again when I see an ambulance with no lights flashing pull up to the curb. 
A short, wiry man who looks like he hasn't slept or bathed in a week stumbles out of the vehicle. He takes one look at me and the two pools of bodies, and then he walks to the back of the ambulance. He returns with a stretcher and two body bags. Lucky they're both small, he says. Want to give me a hand? He unzips one of the bags and hands me plastic gloves. I put them on and we lift the dog and Cassie into separate bags and zip them up. The smell is wretched and coats the air and pulls at my nose. The wiry man doesn't seem to notice. Technically, I'm not supposed to take the dog, but what the hell, he says, stopping to look at me for a moment. You're not the father, are you? No, I say, just then realizing how much of a fog my mind is really in. I'm not. Good, he says, and then chuckles and shakes his head. Want to help me carry these to the van? Without answering, I help him grab the bags and put them onto the stretcher and then put the stretcher in the back of the ambulance. The bodies are surprisingly light and the whole ordeal goes by quick, which makes me nauseous. She was playing with that thing this morning, I say, my eyes caught on the two bags. Yeah, I hear from the man. Been happening a lot lately. They say there's something wrong with the animals, especially the dogs. Really? I say, my attention turning completely to the man. I haven't heard anything about that. They don't want to talk about it, he says. Who's they? Everybody. Afraid it's just one more thing that'll make people snap. I turn back to the bags and catch a glimpse of myself in the window of the door to the ambulance and realize how completely painted in blood I am. It looks almost black in the night. I realize then how heavy it feels on my skin. I look to my hands and they are caked with a deep and rough red that I fear will never come off. Here, the man says. I look up and see he's handing me a card. I grab it. It reads in plain black text, Night Watchers. Below that, there is a phone number. Is this a joke? I know, I know, he says as he closes the back doors to the vehicle. It's a stupid name. Don't blame me for it. But what we do, it's important. And you seem like the kind of guy who might want to help do the right thing. What are you talking about? I feel like I'm dreaming now, like the man and the bodies left a long time ago, and I'm now laying in bed, dried blood flaking onto the sheets, dreaming of something truly strange. Just give the number a call, he says. Maybe you're interested, maybe you're not. But like I said, animals, especially these damn dogs, they've been acting weird. Nobody's talking about it, nobody's doing a damn thing about it either. My eyes drop to the card, and when I look up again, the man is gone. I hear the driver's side door to the ambulance close, and then the vehicle slowly makes its way down the street the shadows swallowing it whole after only a few moments. I turn and look back to Cassie's house. I don't know why, but I expect to see the father. Instead, I see nothing, just a dead home with every, dead home with every window covered by cheap wood. My eyes fall to the ground where I sat half the day, where Cassie died in my arms. Outlines of my two companions are drawn in blood on grass. Some of the dog's brains and bits of bone remain. Flies circle the area. I walk back into my house. The card sits on my kitchen table for two weeks. I don't know what exactly makes me eventually call. Maybe it's Cassie's eyes or the fact that images of her clawed throat have taken up permanent residence at the forefront of my mind. Maybe it's even that it takes two or three days for the blood to completely wash off my hands and then, even then, I still see it no matter how much I scrub. Maybe it's something inside me I can't explain, but every time I find an excuse to walk past the card, my eyes find their way to it. Whatever the reason is, after two weeks, I watch as my fingers dial the number. I listen to familiar rings on the other end of the line, and then as I'm about to hang up, I hear a voice. We meet every Tuesdays at Jay's shop on Connor Street at 7 p.m. Then I hear a click that echoes through my head. I drop the phone and wonder if I just listened to the sounds of a man or a machine. I'm dazed until something quickly snaps its way across my mind, and I jump to a kitchen drawer, dig for a few seconds, and then pull out a pen and paper and write, Jay's shop, Connor Street, Tuesday, 7 p.m. The building appears abandoned. A handful of windows give off pieces of light, but there's a sense of nothingness to it. A sign sits atop the building, paint cracking, the bold lettered name on it almost unreadable. 
I leave the car and walk to the front door. I turn the knob expecting it to be locked and am surprised when I fall into a large room with a crowd of 20 or 30 gathered in the center of it. My first impression is of an AA meeting. Metal chairs scarred with rust are set up in front of a small wooden stage with a podium and chalkboard. When I come through the door, I know I'm late because everyone is sitting and someone is standing at the podium and all eyes are on me. I try to think of something to say, but my throat is dry and my head is empty. Then someone familiar stands up and walks over to me. I know him. It's all good, he says, waving at the crowd. The other men slowly but cautiously turn their eyes back to the stage where the person at the podium starts to speak again. I can't focus enough to hear exactly what he's saying. Hey man, wasn't sure if you'd ever show, the EMT says to me, still looking like he's a week deprived of sleep and hygiene. Yeah, is all I can think to say. We're almost finished here. Clank is just handing out the roots for the night, letting people know where the sightings have been happening. Clank? Yeah, not sure if that's his real name. Sightings? Don't worry, it'll all make sense soon, man. You can go with my group tonight. By the way, you got a gun? A gun? Yeah, a gun, you got one? I almost say no, but then I remember the thirty-eight revolver I have at home. I only shot it once, years ago, and hit nothing on the target I bought. Yeah, I do. Good, good. Not a shotgun, is it? No. Don't worry, we got plenty. I say nothing back because I don't know what to say. I'm as dazed and clouded as when I first talked to the man. As we both watch the stage, and I take in the characters in the room, I start to feel aches and cramps in my stomach. I don't know what I'm doing here, but something in me knows I don't belong. The man at the podium finishes up, and everyone stands and starts moving around the room, shaking hands and greeting each other. Some are what I expect, men who look like tree trunks with long white beards and leather jackets. Others look like upstanding, middle-aged, balding suburban commercials. Some are young, some are old. The only common thread I notice is that every one of them is male. The EMT taps me on the shoulder and then starts walking over to a group of five or six men in a circle in the corner of the room. I follow. He walks into the group while I stand on the outskirts. I hear him mumble something and then they all turn and look at me. I stand with my hands in my pockets, wondering if there is going to be a way for me to sneak away without anyone noticing. Everybody, this is the new guy I mentioned earlier. He's going to come out with us tonight and see what we're all about. The EMT shoots me a dirty and mysterious smile. I don't trust his lips. The others look at me with little interest. The EMT introduces most everyone to me, and I introduce myself. I realize after hearing a few names and saying my own multiple times that I don't know the EMT's name, and this makes me even more nervous than before. A map is brought out and two people are told they are driving. The EMT says he will take a separate car with me inside. Before we leave, I follow the EMT and everyone else into a different and smaller room. Someone stands at the doorway to the room and people line up against a wall and each one says a number when it's their turn. The man at the door then disappears and comes back with a shotgun for each person. The action repeats itself again and again. I don't know guns well and all of them look the same to me. I know they are shotguns. Beyond that, the world I've entered only grows more foreign to my senses with each passing moment. When people walk away, they cock their weapons, look down the sights, or slowly caress the buttstocks like they're, like they're familiar with them and getting reacquainted. I stand by myself to the side until the EMT walks in my direction with two guns. He hands one to me, which I hesitantly take. The thing is heavy and strange to my touch. Something about holding it for the first time in that crowd feels wrong. I try to get comfortable, but I am a stranger to its every inch. Don't worry, brand new, the EMT says. All right, let's go get some ammo, and then we're ready to go, bud. He walks off, and for one odd reason or another, I feel like I have no choice but to follow. The EMT and everyone else load their shotguns inside. I watch the EMT load his, and I mimic what I see. Loading the thing ends up being harder than it looks, and it takes me a few tries. When people are finished, they begin filtering out to various vehicles parked behind the building. 
I'm parked in front. Before exiting the room, I hear every person cock their weapons. At first, it's a non-bothersome, almost pleasant sound. Then it's like thunder. After the third or fourth time, I jump every time I hear it and hope no one notices. We are on the road. Sitting in the passenger seat in my partner's Jeep, I feel like I'm going to pass out. I feel like I'm losing time. I'm simply waking up in different moments, looking around, wondering what exactly is happening to me. Before long, we are consumed by the night. One of the headlights is out, and all I see in front of us is a fraction of the tore-up road and the vague outline of a truck's brake lights in front of us. I look, o I look over to what must be my friend by now, and he's smiling, showing off the dimples high on his scratchy face. I loosen my grip on the cold shotgun, sitting between my legs because my hands are wet and slippery. The EMT pulls out a pack of cigarettes and lights one, nearly losing control of the wheel as he does and putting us into a ditch. He catches the steering wheel at the last minute and pushes the pack my way. My inability to answer tells him to put them away, so he does. Dogs are never supposed to exist, man, he says, taking a long and slow drag off his cigarette. He rolls the window down a bit to get rid of the ash, and the air is cold and grimy. They were man's mistake. Did you know that? He looks to me with saucer eyes for a moment and then turns his attention back to the road. He shows no sign of needing or wanting me to take part in this conversation. There never used to be dogs, just wolves. They had high levels of stress hormones in their blood. That kept them away from humans. It was a survival thing. He finishes his cigarette and throws it out the window. I'm not sure, sure if he smoked at an alarming or normal pace because time's grip is no longer with me. They were like us in the beginning, man. They hunted, they gathered, they fucked, they survived. He lights a second cigarette from the pack, not offering one to me this time. He does a much better job keeping us on the road as he goes through the ritual of lighting it. Eventually, we see an advantage to these things. We start giving them food, and these wolves, they start trading their freedom for what they think is an easy life. They help us hunt and guard a village here and there, and they get our scraps. They make good helpers, and people feel not so alone, I guess. He takes a long and deep drag off the cigarette and exhales slowly. That's where it all changed, man. Once people have a little control, they suddenly want it all. We started killing off the wolves who couldn't be trained or didn't listen. We turned these animals against their own. We start breeding them, choosing who they fuck. Over time, this artificial selection starts turning these wolves into soft, domesticated dogs, completely dependent on people. The MT is halfway through his second cigarette when he gives, a, gives it a look of disgust and throws it out the window. He rolls his window back up and the car suddenly feels half the size it was before. We took evolution into our own hands, man, and created Frankenstein monsters all because we wanted to feel loved, validated, needed. Our weakness bred theirs and now, now they don't know what the fuck they are. We sit in silence for what I think is the next minute or so. The MT is lost in his own world and I am trying to understand what he's saying and what we are doing. There were some big sightings where we're going now, supposed to be one of the biggest groups yet, my partner says. His eyes are only scarcely paying attention to the road now. He is more fidgety and fiery and it only gets worse as he keeps talking. See, they don't want to talk about it, man. People, what's left of our so-called leaders, nobody wants to talk about it because it's just one more thing, one more fucking thing that might make people just snap. We've already seen plenty of that, am I right? He turns to me quickly and then laughs to himself. I can feel my forehead and my back getting wet and tight. My breathing is getting more and more shallow as the car picks up speed. We start hitting bad bumps as we move onto a dirt road and the shotgun starts rattling around between my legs. I'm forced to grab it with both hands to keep it from moving. See man, the dogs, all the animals really, but especially the fucking dogs, they started acting weird right after the news. I started seeing attacks all over. Then they started going wild, domestic pets running into the woods, getting into groups and attacking people, hunting, crazy shit. I look to my chauffeur and think I finally understand what we are doing. It starts sinking its way into my skin like the sharp metal tip of a knife. 
I've never heard any of this, I managed to say, though I don't recall thinking it before the words leave my mouth. That's because they don't want to talk about it, man. There are groups like this everywhere, though. Plank came and found me one day, handed me some cards, told me to come out with him one night. I did, and you know what? He turns to me, his foot pushing the gas pedal farther down. For the first time since the news, I felt like I was doing something that fucking mattered. He laughs hard after a beat and then turns his attention back to the road. Been recruiting ever since, he says with a howl. I look down to the shotgun between my legs. It's warmer now to the touch. Still mechanical and foreign, but warmer. You kill the dogs, I say. Not sure if I'm asking it or just saying it so I can help my brain and body and heart understand. We kill the dogs, he says with a smile. That makes my bones rattle and ache. Here we go. The car slows down and then the one headlight goes out. Soon we are at a crawl. I lean forward and try to look out the windows, but it's so damn dark. I think I see the outline of trees and hear the crunching of leaves and sticks beneath the car tires, but I can't be sure. After a few moments, we stop. I can hardly make out the truck in front of us, and then I start hearing the closing of doors echoing through the night. Then I see the sudden flare of flashlights. The driver's side door opens, and the EMT looks at me and just says, Stay close. He hands me a flashlight. I take it and wait for him to get out of the car before I exit. The gun is so damn heavy. I'm surprised by how heavy it is. It can't weigh more than a few pounds, but my wrists and shoulders burn from the weight of it. I put the flashlight in my belt because there are enough other lights slicing through the night. I see two people take out electric tape and roughly attach their flashlights to their guns. I think about asking for some tape, but I tell myself it might be better to stay quiet. Clank, the one who seems to be in charge of this little group, starts talking and everyone gathers around him. All right, about half a mile into the woods that way is where a whole pack was spotted near some sort of cave. It's big, a pack of at least 20. 20, I hear myself say, mistakenly assuming I would only think it. A few eyes turn to me and then back to Clank. The EMT gives, a light, gives me a light slap on the shoulder. This is big, boys, biggest one yet. We all know why we do this. Everyone nods and then Clank gives a nod himself and starts leading the way. The EMT and I stay to the back of the group. Everyone moves in a rough tactical formation from what I can see. Their heads are on a swivel, their guns at the ready, their backs arched. Every ten feet or so, the EMT turns around and scans the darkness behind us as if he's checking to see if we are being followed. We walk slow, noises like the crunching of the ground at a minimum. I watch my own feet where I'm stepping to try and remain as silent as the others. When I finally look up, the shadows of the forest grab hold of my eyesight and don't let go. I don't see the EMT. I don't see the flashlights. My heart tickles the edges of my throat, and I feel like a fool. I'm going to die alone in the dark in these woods. I am a fool. After a moment of staring into the endless blackness and listening to the nothingness of the night, it all feels eerily appropriate. I should have known this is how I would go. This is how we all eventually go, I think. I'm about to fall to my knees and let the night cradle me to death when a thundering crack rings out and jumps the hairs on my neck. I duck down, my eyes frantically scanning the solid blackness of the night. I see nothing, and then there's a flash not too far ahead to my right. It looks like a beam from a flashlight. Then I remember, like an idiot, the flashlight in my belt. I pull it out, and, and the light quickly and brutally cuts into the night. My feet are slapping against mud, against mud when another thundering, cracks, thundering, cracks, thundering crack cuts its way through the air, louder this time. I stop for a moment, my body hesitating, my heart thumping against my ribs, and then I start moving again following the light from my hand and moving to the group of lights I see ahead of me. I make it five feet or so and then something stops me. I feel a presence before I see anything. I move my light around and then see it. Its eyes hit me first. They are wide and scared. It stands frozen in fear waiting for my next move. For a moment, I feel my hand lifting the heavy gun, but I stop myself. 
The dog makes no move to attack me or run. It's more threatened and scared than anything else. The animal ju uh, jumps and lurches forward when a bang cuts through the silence between us. I don't jump this time. I look back to it and it seems ready to run, but its eyes are still glued to me. I start moving away from the dog, its eyes on me the whole time. I walk past it slowly trying to let it know I don't want to hurt it. Another bang cuts through the night, and then another. I don't jump either time, but the dog does. It watches me until I may be ten feet away from it. I turn my eyes and attention in front of me. Then I hear its small paws scurrying against the ground. Once I know it's gone, I move a little faster to the noises and the lights. There's another bang, and then another. I've never heard a shotgun go off, and the closer I get, the more I realize it's a noise that envelops all your attention, grabs hold of your brain and heart, and temporarily enslaves you to its power. I come to an opening in the trees. I turn my flashlight off when I see the spot illuminated from other lights. I hear another bang, and another. My eyes move to the center of the opening. Everyone is standing in a circle. In the middle of the group are four dogs. Each of them are different breeds. I recognize one as a golden retriever, and the other three I don't know. They are each covered by so much dirt that it's hard to tell anyway. The dogs don't notice me, and neither do the men. They are all too distracted. Even the EMT, his face completely consumed by what is happening, doesn't turn to acknowledge my presence. One person in the group, a heavier set man with a big mustache, holds up his shotgun, takes aim, and then fires with precision. The discharge of the gun smokes the air and makes my ears ring. I look to the middle again at the dogs, and I see one of them, the golden retriever, fall as his entails begin separating from his body. He yelps a little and then tries, tries to again, but nothing comes out the second time. When he finally falls and his eyes go blank is when I notice what he falls on. He and the three other dogs are standing on a pile of what Cassie and the neighbor dog look like. The flies are there and the blood is black. I want to look to the EMT, to the men, to make some sense of what is happening, but I can't. My face, my body, my brain, my everything is plastered to the pile of fur and red and slimy insides in front of me. Finish them off, I hear someone say. I look up and see it's Clank. His eyes are set on the dogs. Then everyone slowly and surprisingly in sync lifts their shotguns and aims. I look at the three dogs pacing about, yelping and whining in hushed tones. They know there's no escape. They stand on the proof that they are going to die. I hear a bang, and I watch as blood and fur briefly fill the air. The shot misses and hits a dead carcass. Then there's another bang, and another. Then all I hear is the screaming of the shotguns. I watch the dogs die, explode, and join the rest of their pack. They slump into the pile. When I know the three dogs are gone, I'm surprised to continue hearing guns firing, along with the sound of others being reloaded. Blood and fur and insides I'm not able to identify open and liquefy. The pile turns to dirty soup in front of my eyes. I look to the EMT who fires, smiling, and that same smile I recognize from the ride over. Some of the others smile like him, while others just look on with precision and dedication. I look back to the pile and try to remember the rotting face of Cassie. The shots slow down and a final bang occurs, and then metallic clicks from empty guns fill the air. My eyes fall to my own fully loaded shotgun. Can I tell you a joke? That's it. Yeah, tell me a joke. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Nice, worked. Yeah, it worked. Sweet.